we are purposefully reading Exodus 25 again. And let's all read it together in the New Living Translation to simplify the descriptions of the cubits, the measurement that's used into our common measuring units so that we can get a better idea and uh, phrases and words more contemporary to get a better overview of something that could be a bit um, complicated or full of information that may be a little bit difficult to um, understand and categorize, etc. Exodus 25. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to bring me their sacred offerings. Recall in the other version, he said, my offering. Accept the contributions from all whose hearts are moved to offer them. Some people's hearts are moved along with the purpose of God. Last evening in the prophetic message we heard that the Holy Spirit will carry people. He will carry people as wind carries people. And in order to be carried, we must travel light. It's not the inability on God's part to do something, such as carry something heavy, but the ineffective means of progressing with God so long as we hold on to things that become a burden to our walk and a grief to God. People who are one with God's purpose will know what to do, when to do, and how to do what pleases God. There's a simple statement here where the Lord is saying, whoever is moved to offer, let them offer. God moves his people who are in tune with him. He can also move heathen people But the great privilege of God's children is that we can know his will by walking with him. Thus far, you see in the book of Exodus that God brought the people out with a mighty deliverance. And that mighty deliverance required believing God and accepting that deliverance. Accepting this great move of God overpowering their oppressors. They had to be ready to receive. They had to believe, but the belief aspect of it is not emphasized as much as it is in their progressive journey with God. God begins to show them that you have to trust me. And as they come out with a mighty outstretched 
hand of God, arm of God. What they believed to help them get deliverance needed to have a more concrete foundation where they would actually trust God when they met with challenges and so the growth of the people not only this massive people numerically but a spiritual growth that God was looking for because he proved himself with the ten outstanding plagues a display of his great power he expected them to trust him so the believing moved from mere acceptance to a volitional trusting of one's welfare into the hands of the living God they didn't have water we saw how they reacted they did not express trust at all they complained they murmured they wanted to even go back to Egypt they said things such as we wish we could go back there this is a virtual death out here what did you bring us out into Moses what did God bring us out into accepting is not the full definition of believing it goes further to trusting and one step further is God's revelation through the law that he gave at Sinai that we read about recently the initial portion of the Ten Commandments and other associated civil and ceremonial laws laws for the religious feasts etc God was conveying to them now obedience is also part of believing so the word believe can be thought of by people as accepting some observation some fact or some statement mere acceptance I accept that and then someone can amplify the meaning of belief from the biblical sense or in the biblical sense to say it also involves entrusting yourself to another or trusting in another having confidence in another God and then as we read carefully in Exodus we see God now proclaimed his word he revealed his word more of his will for his people it wasn't merely I want to take you out of Egypt and bring you as my firstborn people into the promised land there's a relationship there it was not God merely facilitating transportation after a mass exodus so that they can be settled and then he'll go his way it's a covenant and a relationship God is looking for the people to have what was lost in the Garden of Eden restored so he had to reveal his word to them through the law 
but he expected faith to be mixed with all the words that he gave them. Their faith went from acceptance, as far as they understood and experienced, to trusting God or entrusting themselves to God. Now, they see that they must obey God. And out of the Ten Commandments, we know the first four relate to the relationship with the living God. How to approach Him, how to revere Him, reverence Him. Now not to bring in any competition to the living God. Because both the competition, quote-unquote, and the people who bring in the competition will be destroyed. Because God is God. And he tells them up front, as we may say in our contemporary language, straight up. I'm God, there's no other. You shall have no other God beside me. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Don't make any graven image the second. And then the sacred duty of reverencing God's name, the third commandment. Then the Sabbath day to keep that holy day unto the Lord. And then beginning with the fifth, honoring the parents. And so on to the tenth. It has to do with our relationship with people. If we can grasp this by faith and go from accepting it mentally, the Ten Commandments are good. It can bring civil order, a sense of morality to protect citizens from each other. And uh, the other laws associated regarding vengeance and not going beyond Adequate punishment for those who violate the law. In other words, not taking someone's life because they knocked out somebody's tooth. There's a limitation imposed to keep them in order, to tell them you don't go beyond this. And we see further in the Revelation of the New Testament, the Lord Jesus said, personal vengeance is prohibited altogether. He took it higher and deeper. And so these commandments, as the Lord Jesus summed up, as we know, had to do with our relationship to God, to love Him with everything that's within us. Not only to cast ourselves upon Him for His mercy in our lives, but to embrace His love, embrace Him as our Father. The Lord revealed more and more. And he said also, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. There's a self-sacrificial attitude built into this commandment. Again, as we saw, one of the points that the Spirit of God was pointing out last evening. We can only have peace in real life if we have this spiritual mindset which only comes from the word of God that renews our minds gives us the proper focus 
Now he stopped at verse 2 in Exodus 25, reading it again purposefully in the New Living Translation, and then comparing the statement in verse 2 with the previous translation we read the other day, God says, tell them to bring my offering. The people who are willing will bring me an offering or my offering. We're talking about that willingness. In short, if faith can be traced in a progressive way as accepting and then trusting and then obeying as part of this belief and faith. And the people here, depending upon their closeness with God, their humility, their reverence for God, their understanding of how great God is and what a privilege to come and offer something to Him. And He has a project, a divine project. And I'm able to bring something we referenced Adam, where God came and he wanted to see what Adam would call the animals, the names. It shows the gentle, loving, generous nature of our Father. He never changes. He gives us this latitude to express our love to him to express our faith to him. And as a father would see a little child and take great joy in seeing that child perform a task or express his or her creativity. Great delight. It may be extremely simple, as the child's capacity is, but a great delight of the father because of the love and the desire to appreciate that child Now the Lord put it out there to the entire couple of million people. Whoever's willing, you can come. Verse 3, And this is the offering which you shall take of them. And he mentions gold, silver, brass, or bronze, Blue, purple, and scarlet thread. Fine linen and goat hair for cloth. Tanned ram skins and fine goatskin leather. Acacia wood. Olive oil for the lamps. Spices for the anointing oil and the fragrant incense. Onyx stones and other gemstones to be set in the ephod and the priest's chest piece. Have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live among them. There had to be a separation. There had to be a recognition, a designation, an exclusive place where the ground will be hallowed and holy, where the people will be off limits unless they are called by God. They had to know this is a holy God. And yet, he's so holy, he says, 
I want to live among you. He wants to bring heaven down to the people. He wants to have that relationship. He does not need anyone. But he gives us that great privilege to enjoy his presence. And he makes it clear it's not simply a list here of things that you can shop for or bring to me so we can get this project going and get the materials in place and build. The purpose is it is a sanctuary for my presence. I will be among you. God's desire. I want to be among you. But you've got to know the difference between holiness and uncleanness what is profane and what is holy. Make sure you know the boundaries. And so with the Christian, we cannot bring anything of the flesh, of the world, of the devil, into God's house. Inasmuch as no one would bring it into a physical building, to think that they can come right into the congregation and right into the sermon, preaching time, the worship time with something evil from the world and present it and spread it out there and set up shop. So in our lives as the building of God, the temple of God, and carrying the presence of God, certain things are off limits to our bodies, to our minds, to the ear gate, to the eye gate what we speak, the words we choose, the conversations, all the way deep into our spirits. There's a sanctuary. So much so that the inmost heart, the sanctuary, as the most holy place where God lives, is even taken and transferred into the physical body. Several times in the past, I've been completely overwhelmed at a loss to try to comprehend the magnitude, overwhelmed in awe, to think that my physical body, this flesh, sinews, bones, blood, water, minerals, This entity of so many pounds moving about independently as it were, a free moral agent and an independent physical human being, according to the scriptures, as I move, I'm carrying God inside of me. The Spirit of God is moving as I move. You know why? Because the Bible says the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. He's in the body. He's in the body. He's in the mind. He's in the soul. So, millions of Christians, people who are truly born again, each one is moving independently, so it seems, but each one is carrying the Holy Spirit within. God is actually in the body. It's not that God is walking along parallel only, but somehow, supernaturally, inasmuch as God, whose spirit became flesh and blood, 
the word became flesh and dwelt among us. There was a stepping into humanity and the physical realm of matter as we know it as God stepped out of the supernatural domain, the glory realm. So he's able to dwell in us though he is God is a spirit in a physical body and in every believer's body. The purpose is God wants a holy sanctuary. And so we see at once, even way back in the book of Exodus, and then comparing passages in Matthew and Corinthians, etc. That many, 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 many things are off limits to the believer. Not in a legalistic sense, but by virtue of us being completely transformed. Whereas we used to live for other purposes. We lived basically to deify ourselves. Not defy, but deify. It simply means to make ourselves as gods. No matter what we worship before or claim to worship by way of religion. The bottom line was, how can I get ahead and how can I look good and feel good? Ultimately, even the false religions we know, they, have a, they may have a sense of asceticism, depriving oneself of food and comfort and trying to achieve something, but God says all of that is useless. And those who claim to have no religion, ultimately it all leads to a self-righteousness and trying to be good enough to achieve something. And the living God has come down to give us what we need, which is salvation. A holy sanctuary. Have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live among them. Where is he living now? God is in the heavens above. He's omnipresent, but he's living also in the very bodies of human beings who have been born again by the blood of Jesus and through the Holy Spirit's regeneration. I'd like someone to continue from verse 9, if you would, please, to the rest of the chapter. Please read it very slowly. And if you have trouble pronouncing something, I would say don't read. Those who are able to pronounce the words, read it clearly and loud enough and slow, slowly for us, please. Exodus 25, verse 9, NLT version. You must build this tabernacle and its furnishings exactly according to the pattern I will show you. Have the people make an ark of acacia wood, a sacred chest, 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches high. Overlay it inside and outside with pure gold 
and run a molding of gold all around it. Cast four gold rings and attach them to its four feet, two rings on each side. Make poles from acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings at the sides of the arc to carry it. These carrying poles must stay inside the rings, never remove them. When the arc is finished, place inside it the stone tablet inscribed with the terms of the covenant which I will give you. Then make the ark's cover the plate of atonement from pure gold. It must be 45 inches long and 27 inches wide. Then make two cherubim from hammered gold and place them on the two ends of the atonement cover. Mold the cherubim on each end of the atonement cover, making it all of one piece of gold. The cherubim will face each other and look down on the atonement cover. With their wings spread above it, they will protect it. Place inside the ark the stone tablet inscribed with the terms of the covenant which I will give to you. Then put the atonement cover on the top of the ark. I will meet you there and talk to you from above the atonement cover between the gold cherubim that hover over the ark of the covenant. From there, I will give you my commands for the people of Israel. Then make a table of acacia wood that is six inches long, 18 inches wide, and 27 inches high. Overlay it with pure gold and run a gold molding around the edge. Decorate it with a three-inch border all around and run a gold molding along the border. Make four gold rings for the table and attach them at the four corners next to the four legs. Attach the rings near the border to hold the poles that are used to carry the table. Make these poles from acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Make special containers of pure gold for the table, bowls, ladles, pitchers, and jars to be used in pouring out liquid offerings. Place the bread of the present on the table to remain before thee at all times. Make a lampstand of pure hammered gold. Make the entire lampstand and its decorations of one piece, the base, 
tender stem, lamp cups, buds, and petals. Make it with six branches going out from the tender stem, three on each side. Each of the six branches will have three lamp cups shaped like almond blossoms, complete with buds and petals. Crack the center stem of the lamp stand with four lamp cups shaped like almond blossoms, complete with buds and petals. There will also be an almond bud beneath each pair of branches where the six branches extend from the center stem. The almond buds and branches must all be of one piece with the center stem and they must be hammered from pure gold. Then make the seven lamps of the lamp stand and set them so that they reflect their light forward. The lamp snuffers and trays must also be made of pure gold. You will need 75 pounds of pure gold for the lamp stand and its accessories. Be sure that you make everything according to the pattern I have shown you here on the mountain. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. It was very clear reading. Praise be to God. Imagine if we were called to a project by a local church that God wants us to build something and he gives us lists of items that are required, and then we have instructions. How we would pay attention to that? Surely, at least as much as we pay attention to some kind of recipe, if we had to bake something, to see what ingredients are necessary, and then also how to use them together to bring out that product that we're looking for. We lose out, miss out, do a sore disservice to ourselves when we gloss over these things and say, I don't want to read all of this, 27 inches and 36 inches and measurements and gold rings and staves or these poles and almond blossom cups and all these things. What does all this have to do with me as a Christian? First of all, it's the Word of God. Every Word of God is God-breathed, the Lord said. It's profitable for us. If we don't show an interest in coming near God and revering Him and reverencing His Word because it's God's Word and we'll never learn how it's applied to us. The first of all, is God's Word, so we must go through it slowly. We must go through it intentionally to see what God is saying and why and ask him 
and pray. But also because this is all based on something that actually exists in heaven. All of these things are prototypes or copies of things that are actually in heaven. You saw that in the book of Hebrews, in the New Testament. As well as here, God says, see to it that you make it according to the pattern. I tell you, there's a, it's a pattern. There's a original in heaven. Thirdly, as we read the word of God, we get to see the symbolism. The meaning of each of these things fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the light of the world. This menorah, as the Jews have it today, the original instructions and the fabrication of it, the making of it. It's been said that it represents creation, the days of creation and light. Jews would say it symbolizes Judaism. But Jesus is the light of the world. The time of the Maccabees in the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament is a great struggle to reclaim the temple after the heathen came and desecrated it. And this menorah took on a, a new significance, a recovery, restoration of the temple, and temple worship. In the midst of that recent institution of a feast and commemoration by the Jews, just some 150 years or so before Christ came, in the midst of that, the Lord said, I am the light of the world. He is the bread from heaven, the bread of the presence that God said must be in the sanctuary, on that table, the construction of which we just read, the instructions for that, and so on, as the Lord further describes the altar, and here the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the very place where God's presence is, and in Isaiah we saw, or we have read before, I'm sure, in Isaiah 6, the angelic beings there, God's presence. And Jesus is God come down to us. He is the sanctuary where we can be safe. And have communion with God. And he dwells in us. Who are sanctuaries. Carrying the presence of God. No wonder the Lord said. In his high priestly prayer. In John 17. I in you. And you in me. It's just beyond our human imagination. Or comprehension. To fully grasp how God not only transcends 
but he inhabits, encompasses. and permeates everything, especially his very own children. So in Exodus, we see the people drawing near. We discussed already about the quality of their relationship. It started out with accepting someone who came and said, I'm going to ransom you. Someone who just came that they heard about a long time ago, but they were in such oppression that surely many of them doubted if they'll ever get out of this. But then the word came through the messenger Moses. There's a God, remember? The God who made covenant with our ancestor Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The question would have been, what about it? What's that going to do for us? We're in bondage. Well, he's coming to deliver you. They had to accept it. And then as they continued in the desert, they had to Believe him more and more. Trust him that he's not going to abandon me. And then through the giving of the law, they had to understand they had to obey this God because he's God. He's not simply a deliverer that's going to take me from point A to point B. He's not simply someone who will give me some provisions along the way and I can depend upon him when I'm in a fix or trouble. But he's a God who overtakes my life because he is life itself. And there's an eternal ongoing relationship with him. It'll never end. That's what God is after because we're created in his image to enjoy that and to live in the light of that knowledge and in the presence of God continually. Obedience and faith go together. This act of believing throughout scripture we see is inseparable from obedience and that's the clear pernicious demonic doctrine that's permeated the churches that I can receive Christ as Savior just accept him and tell the youth come to a pizza party our youth is going out we're going to have a fun time we're going to play Jesus music and yeah we can play football too and Maybe in the course of that, you can accept Jesus. There are those who genuinely get transformed, although they're introduced to him in an incorrect way. Their sincerity draws the attention of God and they get born again. But, by and large, it's a misrepresentation of the gospel message and the Christian message. To say simply, you just have to accept him. We have to trust him, not just accept his offer to make us feel better, get us out of some trouble. I have to trust him with my whole life. And further, I have to prove that I really trust him by obeying his voice. And these people are given through Moses the instructions and the latitude seen here. Whoever is willing, let them bring. Whoever understands the great privilege, they would have jumped on it. And so it is with us. God comes to us daily. Whether we prioritize, because we understand the value. Imagine if someone 
one's child is on a soccer team and it's constructive it's a blessing the child is engaged the child's health is helped and the child is constructively occupied it can have positive effects on the child's other activities such as education better circulation and all those things and the parent sees that you know i've been taking my child to this training and soccer camp or games for a whole year and i've seen tremendous progress and he's happy and i'm happy and then someone says you know on saturday morning we'd like to go on a hike why don't you and your son come with us the parent is in a little bit of a dilemma well this neighborly friend wants me to bond with them perhaps you know spend some time together and it's a great activity but i'd have to decline politely because we're into this so much and the child is used to going to his training and games on Saturdays and well it's just an integral part of his life now and I don't want to break that pattern so I'm sorry he's got soccer practice and someone else says you know I really need your help parent because we're in a little bit of a crisis what's that I can't go to the store and I'm out of some things I really need Would you mind going for me on Saturday morning? A dilemma stepped up perhaps. Now there's a need. I'm going to have to decline because the need of my child here, this pattern you see, the problem is a problem of juggling priorities and challenges and alternatives to those priorities. Now someone comes and says you can't go to the soccer game today. And the child begins to be extremely upset. What's happened? This is a pattern for the past year. Does my parent not love me and the parents upset thinking how can the child think I don't love him and can he give me a chance to explain and the parents also upset that the child can't go but the problem is COVID-19 has struck. and they think you know what this may be the last soccer game he ever goes to or I ever attend if we don't heed the warning here because there's the heat and the height of covid-19 in the local area and people are dying the priorities have changed with good reason we think it's common sense but it's not so common this kind of sense among people when it comes to their souls the soul could be dying desperate for the water of life desperate for the heavenly word but they ignore it because other things have crept in and crowded it out god has come to the camp and he's telling them i'm moving you from point a to point b not just geographically physically spiritually i'm calling you up higher i'm coming down i want to dwell with you who's 
understanding the ultimate significance of this, who is willing to partake and participate, what a privilege. And so they also understand, and we understand better now, by God's grace, with the revelation of God, that this is a prototype copy of what is in heaven. They're actually partaking of making something that God himself is asking them to produce, which is mirrored in heaven. How is that? What a priority. Now, we have the privilege of knowing so much from the Word of God. And we haven't even embarked upon even the beginnings of the symbolism, really. But how can I ever know what it is until I like God's Word, love God's Word, and tell that flesh to shut up so the Spirit can grow. Take the time. Shut everything down. Deliberately say no to everything that comes and competes for your attention unless it's an emergency. To get into that kind of habit says to the Lord in heaven, this person is interested. This person understands the value. And because they keep coming to me, things will start getting clarified because my spirit will be pleased because they're doing what? Making this a priority. And so every piece of furniture for the tabernacle, the tabernacle itself, we mentioned the sanctuary, and now we read it in the New Living Translation to get a better idea in our system of measurement with the inches of about approximately how long it would be, such as the table, about three feet long, to get a visual about a foot and a half wide, a little over two feet high, overlaid with pure gold, speaking of the king, royalty. That which is costly, it's worth it because it reflects the place where God's going to dwell. And so it's important for us to take care of what God has given us to keep our temples clean because God is in it. Primarily to keep it free from the pollution of this world. Later on we'll get to Leviticus and we'll see the detailed commandments for the washings. Even on the Day of Atonement how the high priest had to wash himself once that service was complete. And so did the person who took that scapegoat and released it into the wilderness once it was done because that goat was carrying the sins also. That individual who was, the Bible says, fit, who has been qualified to be able to take that goat outside representing the sins of the people to be gone, disappear, while the other goat was sacrificed. Bearing the sins, this one took the sins far away. Even that person who let that goat out into the wilderness to disappear had to wash. 
all of this to show how God wants us to be clean with no moral filth. Otherwise, we cannot live with Him and He won't live with us, period. Now, light people take it. Church, activities, family time, all mixed up into one so that it doesn't really have much of a significance greater than a sanctified soccer game, perhaps. It's just another activity, but we have God in it in Christianity and some families coming together, maybe a, a huge get-together, and we're going to learn the Word of God. And as a pastor, a dynamic, and he's really down-to-earth and user-friendly and just have a great time. Oh, yeah, everything is wonderful. And it was awesome as pizza is awesome. It's all mixing together. There's no understanding. And that's why sin is rampant in the churches. Rampant. And there's no magnetic power, spiritual power to draw people to God. They can draw people to their churches by offering what they want, user-friendly. But to God and to a consecrated life, to be born again and to live for God and to draw near to God, to be used by God, to surrender to God. It's very mixed up. But as we read the scriptures, as we understand how God keeps setting the boundaries, and he actually says, people will die if they try to come near me in any manner other than what I've prescribed. Again and again we see lack of obedience often leads to death in the early history of Israel. And there are other things that continue to lead to death even today because of disobedience to God's commandments. Now, if we can instill that understanding into our own selves, how would we relate God to our children? As a loving Jesus? Absolutely. But as they progress, and as they read the Word of God, they get to have that what? Holy fear, without which nobody's going to see God. No one will see God. They have a clear understanding. I go to college or high school, I'm not going to lose my faith as many, many, many youngsters do. The number is astronomical, especially those who have been homeschooled and taken to church and participated in Sunday school. What happened? What happened was, they never understood the character of God, who He really is. They thought He was a sanctified Santa Claus. And uh, emergency 911, the capital J on the truck for Jesus. He'll come. Just call Him. We need to have that holy fear of God ourselves so we can convey it to our children. The majesty of God, the holiness of God, the plan of God, that it's relational. It's not simply something of an emergency response from God when the child's in trouble or when he's having a bad day. Things don't work out. It's me and my backpack. I'm going to go hiking and I'm going to take Jesus with me. I'm going to have a great time with nature. 
What a vast difference between the holy men and holy women of God, even youngsters who understood who God is. They had intimate communion with God. If they walked into the wilderness, as I mentioned the other day, the famous evangelist Charles Finney, there's a definite encounter with God. Everything was about the Lord. Everything was surrendered to God because He is God. They understood that. And so Exodus gives us more and more of that understanding and revelation where we will continue in faith showing obedience, love and honor and fear of God and make it to heaven. Because you see, after all, even though we're justified from sin, instantly when we place our trust in Jesus, believe that he died on the cross for us, we're also in a probationary period. We must never forget that. It's only the one that endures unto the end that will be finally saved. That's what Jesus said. So even though the salvation is real, it's genuine, it's an ongoing walking with God in obedience that will make me to actually enter into heaven. With Exodus 25 as a backdrop, to understand the beginnings of God's revelation to the people about His holiness and His love, how His presence will be with the people. But how that faith went from accepting God to trusting Him for their needs and then to obeying Him, all of that's involved. I'd like to take you on an intentional excursion, if you will, to Matthew chapter 7 to talk a little bit more about faith. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 14. Actually from verse 13. Would someone please read slowly and clearly for us Matthew seven thirteen and 14. Matthew seven thirteen and 14, the Living Translation. You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gate to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. Praise the Lord. How sobering. The Lord is speaking to me on this a couple of hours ago. You have another passage also in the book of Luke stating the same thing. Someone please read from Luke thirteen twenty four. Luke thirteen twenty four. Work hard to enter the narrow door to God's kingdom, for many will try to enter, but will fail. When we look at this, he says in verse 14, after talking about that Broadway, they say the neon lights are bright, on Broadway, so the words of a song goes. 
And that's how Broadway will always appear. Neon lights. The aroma of the world. The visual attraction that always try to grab the attention. We need to know that path is not going to lead to life. It's leading somewhere else. Just like songs that are not from God and music and dance, things that are not from God, they have a seductive quality to them. To ensnare especially the believer. Devil's always there with his shop and his wares trying to bait the believer. Always. What God expects us to do is spit on that and keep walking. You think, well, that's a little sharp, isn't it? Isn't that kind of offensive? I mean, how about just walk away? No. We need to have a disgust for it. Spiritually speaking, we need to be able to spit on that. There's a transformation that happens to us where we go from longing to go back to the world and trying to make compromises to understanding that it's no good for me but still being attracted to it secretly. To saying no, 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 thank you, no, 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 maybe, no, 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 not going to watch it, not going to go, no, maybe, no, maybe, no, maybe, maybe, no, maybe, maybe, okay, okay, if you insist, that's the problem. If I don't understand that the source of the Broadway with all its neon lights is Lucifer with a false light, then I'll be baited into that. And I will miss not only the path, the way, but the gate. You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. Think about entering an office building, entering an event. It's uh, rather exclusive. You have to have a ticket or you have to go through a turnstile. You have to be checked by the security guards. You can't just go as a mass or a crowd. But the path that leads to hell, masses can come anytime, any way. Whatever you'd like to do, you're accepted. Come, the devil says, come. Come as you are. Stay as you are. The Lord said, if you're going to come to me, you have to come through this path that is actually narrow. The path is narrow. And it's difficult, and the gate is also narrow. That word for straight, can somebody please read this now in the New King James Version, Matthew seven thirteen fourteen. 
Matthew 7, 13, 14. Go ahead. Please. Oh, please go. Um, Matthew 7, 13 and 14, King James Version. Making the word of God of no effect through your tradi- tradition, which you have hand- handed down, and, and many such things you do. When he had called all the multitudes to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand. We're reading Matthew seven, thirteen to fourteen. You see, if you have that, please. I'm sorry, Pastor. I thought it said Matthew's Mark. I'm sorry. Okay, okay. Matthew seven, thirteen, fourteen. Praise God! I have it. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate of broad, is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many ways, many who go, and many who go in it by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which lead to life. And there are a few who find it. I'm sorry, Pastor. That's okay, Nisa. Praise God. So the the word narrow and the word straight, actually in the other version we see the word straight, S-T-R-A-I-T, which means narrow. So again, the word narrow is used, both saying that it's a, a restricted exclusive path where people are able to go in one by one, but more importantly, it's a path that will be afflictive also. It'll bring affliction. It's not easy. How many people would like to go to heaven today thinking it's easy? I just have to accept Jesus. I just have to believe Jesus. So yeah, he's my God, my God. I'm going to give him my worship to my God they may find themselves in hell because they fail to obey his voice. And the challenge is that this pathway that leads to life has with it trouble. The actual word straight, S-T-R-A-I-T, would someone else please read now from the King James, Matthew seven thirteen fourteen. Matthew seven thirteen fourteen. King James Version. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there 
did that find it? Praise God. So that word straight, S-T-R-A-I-T, doesn't mean straight as we know it, usually S-T-R-A-I-G-T. It means narrow. And it's interesting, the Greek word for that straight, S-T-R-A-I-T, as the Lord says, that gate, that way, is straight, is the word steno where we get the word stenosis. As I looked at that Greek word, immediately I thought about stenosis, and that's exactly where it's derived from. Stenosis is a condition, medical condition, as you may know. It's a narrowing of uh, the blood vessel or even an organ. It's a narrowing of it. It's a dangerous narrowing of it where the blood cannot flow. Now, that's the negative aspect of steno in stenosis here it's a positive thing because it'll lead to life in other words there's a gate that is narrow it's very very restrictive There are not two options or three options, only one option, only one way. The gate that leads to life, Jesus said, I am the gate. Everything he says we must do, everything. That's the only way we can be on the path that leads to the gate that will open for us to get into heaven. So this stenosis is a narrowing of the blood vessels or organs. And that's the word steno for the word straight, describing the gate. But not only is the gate narrow, but the pathway is narrow. And the word for that is the Greek word thlibo, T-H-L-I-B-O. And the, the functionality of this, I'm not interested in Greek, Hebrew, or any definition or explanation, unless it is practical and functional for my Walk with God. We can spend hours and days and weeks and a lifetime studying Greek and Hebrew and all kinds of references from ancient literature. But if it doesn't have a functionality in my spiritual life, I, for one, don't want anything to do with it. It's a waste of time. But in this case, there's a definite application, and I trust it will benefit you as it has benefited me. If the gateway is narrow, straight very restricted the path that leads to it also is narrow and the word for that narrow is it's compressed it's a place that is crowded in with affliction and trouble afflictive with affliction and also with tribulation and persecution you see what God is saying? He lays it out right at the front, right at the beginning to the people. If you're going to enter heaven, you have to be willing to withstand the trouble that's going to come to you. It will come to you. As you do what? Strive to enter in. That's what he says in Luke. If we turn to Luke 13, 24, someone please read that. 
Luke 13.24. Luke 13.24, the New King, King James Version? Yes, you can read it there. Would you like me to read King James Version? You can read um, the New King James Version. That's fine. Thank you. Strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Now, this word, strive, is important because it is what's going to enable us to fight against the problems that come and hold on to Jesus. The word strive actually is the word that relates to agonize. Agonize. The Greek word is agonizomai. And it has to do with struggle. It has to with, do with fighting, actually. There's a fight. Not, in another passage, actually, the Lord says, if my servants or my kingdom was of this world, my servants would fight. He said, if my kingdom was of this world, if I'm from here, my, my disciples, my servants, they would fight for me, physically. But the kingdom is not of this world. John 18.36, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. It's the exact same word as the prerequisite to entering into heaven, which is agonizome. Agonize. Fight. God is saying, if you're going to be a Christian and make it to heaven, you've got to fight. Fight against what? Everything that will try to get you off that path. Particularly, the things of this life that will seek to crowd you out of that path. Namely, persecutions, tribulations. By the way, in the book of Acts, in chapter 14, in verse 22, someone please read that, Acts 14, 22, to get a better grasp on what salvation is and how we can make it to heaven. Acts 14, 22. Acts 14.22 Friending the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Praise God. The people, the apostles, they went around telling the good news. But they didn't just say, Jesus loves you, God loves you. Keep on going. Keep, keep doing what you're doing. A lot of sayings people do to try to uh, pep up somebody and just, you know, give some positive remarks. They really have no spiritual value whatsoever. But it says clearly that they went confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them, encouraging them to continue in the faith and 
that the way you're going to enter into the kingdom of God, that means finally, they're saved. But if you're going to continue to be saved to the point where you end up in heaven, he said, you've got to fight against tribulation. You've got to know that it involves tribulation. The Christian life is not an easy life. The Lord made that clear up front. He says in Luke, strive to enter in at that narrow stenos, narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will try to enter in and they won't be able. Why? Because they give in to sin and they want to bail out when the going gets tough, when they trust Jesus. When persecutions come, just like you said about the sower and the seed, when the trouble comes, they fall away. They don't understand. This is something you have to value, enough to treasure, enough to protect, so that you can possess. You have to strive against this. And the Holy Spirit records to the Apostle Paul, all they that seek to live godly or live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer what? Persecution. That's what this pathway is, this tlibo, T-H-L-I-B-O. It means compressed, troublesome, with tribulation, just like the apostles said by the Holy Spirit in Acts 14.22. This path of Christianity that's going to lead to life, it's going to involve hardship. But you can fight and overcome it and make it to heaven, but you have to know you've got to fight. You've got to fight. You've got to fight against temptation, against evil, and you've got to be victorious because only those who overcome. Jesus said in Revelation 3, will he confess before his Father and the angels in heaven. You see? We've got to fight and overcome. It's not enough to say for some people, well, God did it all and I'm just going to cruise along and I'm on a free ride because he paid it for me. Somebody graduates to the next level. Oh, I understand that I got to fight. I can't give in to temptation and start smoking dope again or doing dope or whatever it is and carousing around and womanizing and drinking and watching the TV shows and things that have nothing to do with God and they're against God, actually, if not directly, indirectly. And it's just a whole mess. No, I, I know I got to be clean. I can't be part of that. And I'm fighting, Pastor, brother, sister. They tell themselves, they look in the mirror at the end of the day. You did a good job. What did you do? You fought. The question is, did you overcome? We've got to graduate from this easy believism of accepting Jesus to knowing I've got to trust in him and to obey him by fighting against all that comes to try to take me off that path. The devil is more clever than any human being. And so we need the word of God continually and the wisdom of God to detect like a radar where that serpent is lurking to try to bait us and take us off the path. What is it? Is it the cares of life? The busyness? Is it the attraction to the things that are the quote-unquote finer things of life? Whatever it is. It's not wrong to be wealthy, not wrong to be materially prosperous. It's a gift from God when we're walking godly and he gives it to us. Because he trusts us that we can handle it properly. How? To give him glory and use it for the function for which he gave it. But if that is lost and we fall in love with things 
and the image and what people think of me. I'm getting off the path. It's a danger zone. So remember these words, straight, S-T-R-A-I-T. That's the path you and I are on. It's the gate, I should say, that we need to enter into. It is restrictive. Somebody says it's like a turnstile, one at a time, and you've got to pay your fare. Yes, Jesus paid it all, but we have to do what? Forsake all. He paid it all, but we have to forsake all that tries to, that tries to keep us from availing ourselves of what he did on the cross. Remember also, Tlebo, if you don't remember that Greek word, it's okay, but remember that the way. The pathway is also narrow, you see? The path is narrow and the gate is narrow. The pathway is described as something that is full of affliction. Now, are we afflicted day and night? No. But there are seasons and there are times when the devil will come for what? Like he tried to do with Jesus, a more opportune time. He seeks opportunity. He seeks to see when we are slacking off in our love for God and he comes in for the kill. But if we know that we need to fight spiritually and overcome everything and stay on the path, it's not going to be easy. But do we want to get there? How many people go through all kinds of tribulation? You know, for what? To go into a ballpark to watch a team play who's making millions of dollars. They're going to cheer them on. You know what they do? They stand with their ponchos and umbrellas and pouring rain and all kinds of things. Why? Because it's the World Series. If you don't make it to the World Series, you're not going to live. You'll die. You've got to make it to the World Series game. If you don't get the latest iPhone and stand outside of whatever gadget stores out there, Wait from 11 p.m. to 5, 6, 7 a.m. Wait online. You're first. What's the temperature? Minus 5. You got to have the latest and greatest. They're able to go through tribulation, even persecution. Somebody coming and saying, hey, I was here first. Let's fight. People are able to do that. Want to have a good time with family or friends somewhere far away? I'll drive 50 miles each way to do what? Have a good time. On the way, all kinds of traffic, all kinds of problem. But I'm looking forward to the reunion. I'm looking forward to the fun time. I may cry about it when I come back, that I had to face this and that, but I had a good time. What will we do for eternal life? What are we willing to give up so we can gain life? Jesus said clearly, it's a hard path. It's a difficult road. It's restrictive. It's afflictive of tribulation and persecution, but you're going to get a crown that will never fade away. I will embrace you forever. It's the path of the cross. You've got to strive, agonize, labor fervently, fight. Because many will try to enter in at that time. It's too late. They live the easy Christian life, quote-unquote. They thought they can make it. Why? They can quote scripture, they read scripture, they do devotionals, they do all kinds of things and they sing worship songs and they turn off the secular radio and all that. 
but their heart is not with God. The treasure is still in the world. They think that they can have the treasure in the world and have God's treasure too. And somehow, when they get up to the gate, the turnstile will just click for them and open up. This holiness of God in Exodus makes us to appreciate and be in awe of His Word, that His Word is holy. There's a manner in which to approach Him. Although we don't have the restrictions faced with the priesthood and their representatives and the elaborate sacrifices, you know, they were willing to do that. Lots and lots of animals and slaughter. They want to make sure they're covered, you see. For that temporary covering, they did a whole lot. That's because sin is so blatantly offensive and wicked before God. The punishment of it requires life. They got to go free or the animals took their sins temporarily. God accepted it. They did a whole lot. And for us, Jesus paid the price with his blood. And he says, now, don't get distracted. Strive, fight, agonize. No, you've got to make it. If there's one thing we need to know, to make sure we do in all of our existence, is to make sure we get into heaven. Why did the people, the apostles in Acts 14.22, if it's by grace that you're saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, according to Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, then why in the world would they say, and that you must enter the kingdom of God through much tribulation? Because that's how it is. See, the apostles didn't mince words. And why are preachers mincing words today? Why don't they tell people the whole truth? That you're not going to get in. You say you believe in Jesus and God's done some miracles for you. You felt something warm and you did have a relationship with Him. But is your heart in the world, in yourself, your own priestly comforts and what you'd like to do? Or are you fighting nobly and victoriously overcoming everything that tries to seduce you away from pursuing your Savior with everything you've got? Because you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That never changed. The test of discipleship, the proof that a person will make it in the end is if they can say like the Apostle Paul, I finished the race. Did he face persecution, tribulation? He faced a whole lot. And the disciples were told. See, see, they confirmed the souls. They comforted them. But they encouraged them also. Continuing the faith, they didn't stop there. They said one more thing. This is why so many people fall away. Many, many people who are once saved or in hell. Okay, the whole message is not presented. That we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. It involves challenges to our faith. We've got to hold fast, not by pure, true grit only, as a psychological manipulation and forte, but a spiritual resilience that says, Lord, sin has nothing to do with me and I have nothing to do with sin. If that's the thing that's going to keep me from heaven, I will kill it every time I see it. 
Mortify, therefore, the deeds of the flesh. That's the only way we'll live from the Spirit. That's the only way we can enter heaven. If we are overcomers. May we ever remember the true meaning of the path that leads to life and how the gate looks and how the path looks. It's narrow, restrictive, afflictive, glorious, prescriptive from God to get into our ultimate destination to be with Him forever. Let nothing stop you from getting into heaven. Remember the Lord said in Revelation also that the people who overcome, the people who obey Him, the people who love Him truly, what will He not do? He says, I will not blot out their name from that book of life. Revelation 3.5 He who overcomes that means that person is on the path and they're fighting with everything they've got by the grace of God, by the power of God's Spirit and winning. They're winning. Nothing can seduce them away from God. No one can successfully tempt them to lie anymore. Hallelujah. No more lying. Hallelujah. No more living for money. No more greed. No more selfishness. No more covetousness. All these things will hinder me. Get me off that path. I won't make it. No matter what I say about Jesus in our relationship. He says, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life. Revelation 3.5 But I will confess his name before my Father. Before his angels. So clearly, a born-again person, truly, genuinely born-again person, no matter where they are on the face of the earth, we will finally enter into heaven only if we overcome. So, we leave that false doctrine of easy believism. We may have graduated to, I need to fight. I'm fighting, but I'm not winning all that much. Well, you better start winning. Because only the winner gets in. Don't you know that many people compete in the race, the apostle said? But only one gets the prize. Jesus says, see to it, no man takes your crown. Paul says, by the Holy Spirit, they do it for an earthly prize. It's eternal, unfading. Peter says the same thing by the Holy Spirit. Unfading, reserved for you in heaven. Glory, crown. This will purify the church, pure doctrine, to keep us fully in love with Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, growing by leaps and bounds and affecting the people who are dead and think they're going to heaven, waking them up. Hallelujah. That's how revival happens. And then the heathen are people who don't know God with the love and compassion and uncompromising message The word, as we heard last night, it carries power. It carries power when we surrender to it ourselves and preach it exactly as it is with love, but also causes this. We close with this this morning. It serves to do what? Warn. 
It warns. And Paul mentioned that. He said in 1 Corinthians 4, 14, I, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. See how love brings warning? Because love seeks to protect, it must warn. But the false love that tries to be buddy-buddy and have a great time and seeks profit will compromise the message. And that day will reveal how deceptive that person was. In Second Peter, says, warn the believers about the false teachers who are peddling damaging doctrine. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, it says, Now we exhort you, brothers, warn those who are what? Unruly. They're idle. They're just doing what they feel like. And then again, the apostle says, Warning every man. We want to present them perfect to Christ. What a training through people who genuinely knew God and served God. The goal is to present every man what? Perfect before Christ. Because he's a perfect God. God is after perfecting us. If we can grasp that glorious call of God on our lives, what it is, we will continue to grow. This is the final verse I was speaking of. Colossians 1.28 Before that he talks about the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Yes, we have a glorious Christ within us. We have all the power we need to live a successful, overcoming Christian life. But we need the word continually. Not only to enlighten us, but to empower us and transform us. Verse 28. Whom we preach, Christ we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. And in this I also labor, striving, the same word, agonizme, agonizme. He says, every ounce I have within me, Paul says, I'm laboring fervently to present everybody God has entrusted into my care, perfect in Christ Jesus. That laboring spirit, the energy that God gives, I'm cooperating with it. It's working in me mightily. I'm going along with the full flow. Hallelujah. I'm going to make it. And the people I preach to, my heart's desire, praise God. Incidentally, this same word is used here. Paul says, I strive. I'm fighting with the fighting that the Holy Spirit is fighting in through me. What is the Spirit fighting against? False doctrine. Sin. Against everything that will try to stop Paul, the Spirit of God is moving him, mobilizing him, energizing him. And he's saying, I'm going along with that flow. I'm doing everything I can too. Praise God. That's the goal. Because Paul said, I'm giving my life so I can present people perfect in Christ Jesus. Glory be to God.
as we see clearly the path and the gate. Question is, are you on that kind of path? The real path that involves tribulation and suffering for the sake of Christ because you're seeking to live godly? And secondly, are you understanding what it's going to require, what it requires to actually enter in? It's going to require overcoming. Now, we have God's grace. We cannot do it by ourselves. No one needs to be daunted by this, thinking that, how am I ever going to overcome everything? I have trouble now, and I'm not that strong of a Christian. God will supply strength steadily as we do what? Prioritize loving Him and being with Him. And we have to kick out those things, pride. Because I can learn a lot about God and even the way about agonizome and I can learn about stenos and I can learn about all the descriptive things, how Jesus conveys how to get to heaven. But if I have pride, I'm not going to make it. That word will condemn me on that day. Because I took it lightly. I thought if I can attend the meetings and do certain things and but I still have a love for the world in Egypt. I still talk to people I know I shouldn't be talking to. That person is in danger. We need to be careful that we draw the boundaries. If you're going to be holy and go to heaven, stay with people who are on that path. Because to do otherwise and to play one foot here, one foot there, God will expose everything. It will be a big shame, danger. So it is with the world. We have to draw clear boundaries for our families, for our homes. That What we're going to do in our house is everything that pertains to godliness. That's what we're going to do. Everything else is out. And when the storms come, we're going to glorify God and trust Him that He's going to pull us through. We're going to continue to love Him, continue to obey Him no matter what that person will continue to be given all the grace necessary to make it to heaven. So this endurance and perseverance part is not excluded or obviated because I'm on the path. I've got to continue and finish the race. I've got to endure until the end. Glory be to God. We'll return to Exodus 26, Lord willing, tomorrow or whenever. Lord gives opportunity. But this all came out of the character of God, his, his desire to dwell with His people, and now He dwells in our bodies. How awesome! When we read about the lightning and the thunderings and the fire and the smoke and the trumpet sound and the earthquake and everything that they saw in Mount Sinai. We need to know that God is the one that lives within me. Can you imagine that? That God who thundered on Mount Sinai is living within you. How holy He is. How holy we should be. As we honor the living God, we will have the greatest satisfaction. We'll be the happiest people in the world, no matter what comes our way. And we'll be able to see, we will be able to see, having the mind of Christ, everything filtered through His Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth. 
and will be able to speak the truth as it is with that power of God because we spend time praying spend time understanding we need to study the word carefully, slowly don't we take time for things that are important if Christ is the most important we ought to devote a good amount of time to knowing him through his holy word and praying as Phil posted that piece from the voice of the martyrs once again we emphasize if God's desires to tabernacle with us and he wants to spend time with us would we be by it like that missionary where he was that native four hours with God he thought it was not enough reading the scriptures and praying you say well I've got a job pastor I've got things to do and I, I can't do this when I'm working no but we can begin nobody gives a prescription a definite mandate that you have to pray and read four hours but the point is of course the desire and the priorities for you it may mean going from five minutes a day quite literally some people may spend literally only five minutes with God privately it may be a quick devotion or a verse and a quick prayer and off they are to work for others it may mean from a 15 minute period with God to graduating to from 5 to 15, those in 15 categories to half an hour. Say, Lord, I need to grow. Help me, Lord. Fathers, it may mean from half an hour to one hour. You see, the thirst grows and the hunger grows. And then again, the quality of that time. There are times in which we can be reading and praying and there's no connection with God. We're just going through the motions. We need to pray, Lord, give me that passion as we heard. Give me the passion for you, Lord. You're my everything. You know, God can take everything away in one instant. Quite literally like it did with Job. Do you know how many people will crumble? They would readily lose their faith in God if that were to happen. Because they never never really loved God first. But when we love God, we're not looking to lose anything but to gain what God has for us. No matter what, we will stick with Jesus Christ. We will make it. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for showing us from your Holy Word what the Christian life really means and how to really make it to heaven. May the fear of God come upon us, Lord, to move us, to pay close attention to your Holy Word, to know what you called us to do and to stick to that path no matter what and not to slack off, knowing that, Lord, we could fall off the road permanently, off the path. And thank you, Lord, that your exhortation and your encouragement is opposite to persevere, to fight, agonize, overcome through our loyalty to you, to enter into your joy. Thank you, Father. Lord, I pray that your truth of holiness would impress upon us very deeply. Not only will we live holy then, but we will be able to convey that to people and they will wake up wherever they are, whatever church, Lord. I pray that people, Lord, who are visiting other churches, 
people who belong to other churches and visiting other churches, they would be compassionate and bold enough to tell people, why don't you come on this video call? Why don't you hear the Sunday sermon from Alberta International Ministries? Why don't you join the morning call? Yes, people of other churches, so they can grow and benefit, even if they can't be here physically. Lord, give the compassion and the motivation that people should get what the people here are getting. That they can be shocked out of their complacency. Set on the path to overcoming the overcoming life and enter heaven. Thank you, Lord. You know the state of men's hearts, every woman, every child. Many, many people, Lord, in churches where some of us may be visiting outside of this church. They really don't know the road is difficult. They have to overcome to make it. I pray that they'd be able to join us so they can grow. They can know that they will make it. Thank you for what you've given us. We have to eat the food first. Get nourished and have the compassion passion for you and for souls. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for meeting us. Morning, through your word, through your spirit. In Jesus' name, we thank you. Bless your people, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.